0: Welcome to the second episode of The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray, the Doc Coob.
1: I'm Marcus,
0: in the darkest. And uh, today, our second episode, we mentioned uh, the Beatles a couple times in our initial episode. Um, I have this theory, Marcus. And it, it has to do with the Beatles being the turning point in rock and roll Is, is it developed... Uh, into what it became in the 70s and 80s and 90s and a little bit beyond before Napster nipped it in the bud. Yeah. But in my th- estimation, where things were before they came along and how they left them, even in while they, the Beatles were still in their active years, mm-hmm. they changed the way so much happened, um, starting with the song selection and the control over song selection uh, on their albums.
1: So they would write and record a bunch of songs and be like, okay, we want this one, we want that one, we don't want this one. And if the label said, well, we want this one, and they said, we don't want this one, they would win because they had that control.
0: That's the way it was with all artists. The, the producer and the label had a lot of say, oh, yeah. with not total control over these things, unless it didn't turn out well. But it's. I, I want to talk a little bit more. I want to just want to lay my case out for you, for everybody out there, uh, as well. And um, feel free to email us uh, with your thoughts at imbalancedhistory at or find us on Facebook and add your comments to this week's link to the episode at Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll on Facebook. So, I, I think the Beatles did a lot to change the way that artists were able to be influencing what was mm-hmm. going to be on their records. Um, they also um, took the move towards all originals on their records, not allowing for the label or producer input on selections to be recorded.
1: Basically, like so, you're talking about the songwriting teams that were very big in the '50s and '60s and writing right. for a lot of the Motown get... artists and the Stack artists, and that's an episode in and the itself. Brill Building,
0: even the Brill Building people. So is I want to is that the Goffin King people yeah, and all, all of that there. group. Sure.
1: Was now was. Neil Diamond part of that group, he I think, and that, James sure. Taylor was part of that group, oh, I think. So well, he wrote it. songs with Carole King, so...
0: But James Taylor got to be James Taylor because of the Beatles, not only in an indirect way, but directly. If what? He, yeah, we'll talk oh, okay, about good. that. Okay, good. That's something we could talk about at some point. So they moved people towards uh, doing all originals on their albums. Um, the British Invasion, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you with the details that, that I know, um, was underway just before the Beatles hit. And uh, they led the first wave, obviously, onto the shores. But they also changed a lot of things. Uh, they changed so much about the uh, concerts, how concerts were run, and, and they, they they took it to a whole different level. Uh, the nature of touring. Um, uh, they helped to propel the next British wave of the British invasion, and then they created a legacy. They took control of so many things, album formatting and and uh, uh, versions of the albums and how they would be released internationally. They were there as production style and capabilities and recording process went from slaving four track units to eight, then 16 and 24. There's things like uh, the style influence. It was the first time that uh, somebody really, other than maybe Elvis, had that much style influence. Um, uh, Writing and recording their own, taking partnership in the studio, taking partnership in their music and ownership of their music, creating their own company to take control of, Publishing and image rights and starting their own label and creating their own legacy. So they did all these things from the moment they exploded in February of 64 uh, until the end.
1: um, So because a few years before that, Buddy Holly was the first to produce his own album. So they basically took what Buddy Holly did and took it to the next level of greatness and of artist ownership.
0: Because they got signed into the EMI family and the, the way that the, it was done very British and there was always a producer and he was always in charge because he's the one that had a report to the bigwigs. I, I start by looking at their influences. Elvis, you know, you don't have to look far into the, into the Beatles persona to find Elvis. Buddy Holly.
1: Little Richard.
0: Carl Perkins. Carl Perkins. These guys, I think, were the primary direct influences on you don't have to you don't have to go far to find Paul McCartney uh or John Lennon doing that little Richard Scream. George was always digging into the the Carl Perkins riff box, you know? Yeah. Um But then I looked at the song selection thing. Now think about this. We we were talking about this while we were setting up. Going back to the Hamburg days, where they played the Star Club, the band had to play a ton of music each night, so they developed not only their own songs, it gave them a chance to write and learn and play them, but it also, they had a repertoire to augment what they were writing and also to be entertaining, because if you weren't entertaining there, I understand you didn't last real long in Hamburg in those days. But out of that, a lot of the covers made it to their albums. Uh, The first British record they did... Um, A song that you wouldn't hear at the end of the Beatles called Anna, go to him. Arthur Alexander was the writer. Who's that? I I don't know. (laughs) I I didn't get that far. We mentioned Brill Building. You mentioned Goff and King. Uh, Chains was Mm -hmm. one that first record. Uh, They covered Bacharach and David and Baby It's You, which was a Shirelle song. That's crazy. Yeah, well, this is where the process was Okay. These were songs that uh, maybe they'd played. Um, and of course, Twist and Shout, which they made their own. They did that oh, yeah. with a number of songs written by Phil Medley and Burt Russell. On the second record, which was With the Beatles, yeah. which was the cover of Meet the Beatles here in the States, I think, mm-hmm. um, they did Till There Was You, which was a Meredith Wilson song written for the Music Man musical, which was a big hit in the late 50s. Yeah. Uh, another Marvel, a Marvelette hit, uh, Please, Please, Mr. Postman, You Really Got a Hold On Me, written by Smokey Robinson. <sighs> They were feeling the pressure to compete with those early, great Motown songs. And money came from that. Barry Gordy, writing team, uh, originally uh, recorded by Barrett Strong. And so these things continued. Then, I submit to the jury, Marcus. Yes. In 1964, they did their first all-original album for the Hard Day's Night soundtrack and movie. But the covers came back for a while because they hadn't yet covered Chuck Berry or... uh, Lieber and Stoller, who were giant songwriters of the 50s and early 60s, Uh, Carl Perkins, two times, Um, I mean, Rock and Roll Music, Kansas City, you know, they covered Honey Don't and Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, Act Naturally, which was a hit for Buck Owens, was a perfect fit for Ringo, and they started to want to get Ringo into the recording mix a little bit, you know, everybody liked him so much. And then um, Larry Williams, who I've, I'm reading about but not finding a whole lot of information on, uh, he did Slow Down and Dizzy Miss Lizzie," just an amazing uh, a list of songs. And you see how it changed from more um, pop, of the charts, saccharin kind of sounding songs to those rock and roll type songs. Yeah. But the trend was away from cover songs on 1965's Rubber Soul. 1966 revolver and the American release in '66 are so yesterday and today. It was starting to be more and more uh, about their songs, and they forced, I think, more than anything, they forced that as an issue um, with Martin first, and then with the uh, EMI brass. But
1: their songs were also that they were writing were also cutting edge because they were writing about courting. The simplicity of courting for teenagers, like, I want to hold your hand. I mean, just like little simple things that were everyday life, and they were telling these magnificent stories of teenagers and early 20-year-olds trying to figure life out.
0: That is it in a nutshell, right there. It's so simple. I want to hold your hand, right? Yeah. But they were telling that story, they were saying that in a way that was different from Pat Boone.
1: Yes, they made um, it
0: fun, and the, the pop the, the pop singers of the fifties they weren't making you jump up in the aisles and pee your pants. No, and
1: Elvis the, was.
0: Elvis was, and there's a thread. You know, there's a thread. You can't really make a family tree connection between Elvis and the Beatles, other than influence in in the same way. In February 64, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan changed things for them. 56 on the Ed Sullivan show with Elvis changed things for him on a mammoth level because of how many people watched that show and what it did not only for them but for other artists. So that's part of my case of the Beatles being a turning point. Elvis turned it on. Yep. They turned it up. Yep. And in some ways, I'm sure Elvis at one point went, Jesus, boys, what are you doing?
1: Never thought I'd see that. <laughs> yep. And the funny thing is, my mom saw Elvis on the Ed Sullivan Show in '56. She did, and she remembers it. I yeah. think, if I'm not mistaken, they showed him above the waist only because yes. he was shaking his hips so much, and they could not have that on TV—way
0: too suggestive oh. for 1956. <laughs> yes, and, and and even for later, a lot of those things uh, we 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 could well, talk. We should talk about Ed Sullivan. Yeah, and the the
1: light my fire, the doors, the light my fire. oh stones, all yep, it, so. oh yeah.
0: All right. Well, we were talking about the British Invasion. Yeah. All right. Some things I've had to go back and refresh myself on. There was a thing called Mercy Beat. Now, the Mercy River runs down to, um, you know, through through Liverpool to the sea. Mm -hmm. And it kind of, Mercy Beat was kind of England's answer to American rock and roll, which had become so popular over there, the 50s rock and roll. And it combined some traditional jazz with modern pop sensibility. They called it skiffle. And the Quarrymen, which was John Lennon and, yeah. and Paul McCartney's first band together, they played skiffle. It became called the Mercy Beat, and it was the launching point,
1: I think, for the British invasion. Now, have you heard any of the skiffle music?
0: Yeah, if you go back, uh, Lonnie Donegan. You ever hear Lonnie Donegan? I've heard the name. Uh, what's the song? Uh, Does your chewing gum lose its flavor on, on the, the night bed? Post yes, over a bit in the bed post over That's... That's kind of skiffle. Okay. Go back and listen to Jerry and the Pacemakers. All right, um, all right. just before the Beatles hit, uh, the British Invasion actually begins with an instrumental group called the Tornadoes gets on the U.S. charts. Um, they were the first one to get number one on the U.S. charts from from uh, from England. Um, Then there was a jazz musician named Kenny Ball. Uh, He hit the chart on 1962 with Midnight in Moscow. So you're talking about a couple instrumental songs Hmm. from England that kind of get things started.
1: Interesting. An instrumental called Midnight in Moscow.
0: Yeah, think about it. Now, these Mm -hmm. records kind of gave hope to the newer artists that were all out there honing their craft in the UK and in Liverpool. One week after the Beatles entered the Hot 100 for the first time, a young lady named Dusty Springfield came along and became the next British act to hit the Hot 100, peaking at number 12 with I Only Want to Be With You. You remember that one? Yes. Now see, this song. is where I would love to drop in a soundbite, but the the the, uh, the copyright laws for the Internet for usage are ridiculous.
1: If we we're on terrestrial radio, we could do this we and could get totally away with it. Yeah, sure, she no would get a, her Her company would get a royalty. There you so. go.
0: Uh, but anyway, so that was the beginning of it with those with those couple instrumental records, and then the Beatles and Dusty Springfield, and all of a sudden people were talking about what was going on in England. Uh, the British invasion had begun. Basically, they were coming across the ocean, and they were uh, taking over the airways with Jerry and the Pacemakers, Chad and Jeremy, Dave Clark Five, and others. And, and then there would be the next wave.
1: You yeah, know. was that like two years after the British invasion, about sixty six, sixty seven? Well, because the like Beatles the king- hit in
0: sixty four, it had already kind of started. It was things were happening in, in over there in sixty two, sixty three, and then it kind of started to happen here. Beatles kicked the door wide open, and, and that, that allowed people like, you know, the animals and the kinks and the stones to come along. And their recording career started, it a lot, some of them in 63, 64.
1: Yeah, and the kinks were early.
0: Yeah, they were right in there so that they were ready. As soon as there was a the door was open to get airplay and get your record sold in America, um, those guys, the animals I mentioned, mm-hmm. um, I love a little story about the animals. Um, everybody was in suits. They all had the the hair the the, yeah. the haircuts and stuff, yeah. right? Everybody had their look. And, yeah. Uh, Eric Burden just didn't like it. He, they were a bunch of tough guys from Birmingham. They didn't want it. They they just wanted to get in there and do their thing. But they went along with it to get to get the attention and to get on television. Um, and then you had the Hollies and the Who. Who comes along, you know, they they were doing what the Beatles were doing in 58, 59, 60 when the Beatles were doing their thing. And then they jumped through the Yardbirds and zombies and more would follow in 65 and 66. Um, But the people who were feeling it were the Pat Boones, the American pop stars. Um, mm. The family in,
1: values uh, pop stars
0: Some of them, yeah um, <laughs> the, the people who fit that category now But also people like the Beach Boys yeah. Or Jan and Dean They were feeling it? Yeah, they felt it initially But the Beach Boys proved to be evergreen And, yes. and you know, they would go on to do even greater things oh, and pet
1: sounds of, yeah, and, sure, and stuff things oh.
0: like that But it would be a couple of years before they would uh, catch up As some people would say In and, and, like 65, 66, 67 Things started to happen and we could talk about that sometime too. The okay. reactions I see some of it as a reaction to the British invasion in places like New York and San Francisco and LA and other places
1: too. But. Is that where we get bands like uh the uh, Velvet Underground? Sure.
0: They're coming right out of that. Yep. It's like you but, want you want loud and vulgar? Come on, uh, yeah, we'll get we'll here's, get
1: loud, vulgar, and artsy.
0: Here's our yeah, here's New York for you, man. <laughs> yep, you know. So that I think that was part of it. The Beatles as much impact as they had in their years, uh, sixty-three to to seventy, really seventy-one. Yeah. Um, they made an impact. Um, Just, uh, Brother May and Andre and I talk about it all the time That nobody w- can never equal what they changed no. uh, One of the things they changed too, Marcus And our jury of our peers Listening on the podcast Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll uh, Is the way that bands can develop a legacy How they're seen after their active days And how they can position themselves With uh, legacy releases Public relations, marketing mm-hmm. And uh, I think they changed that I I think they changed the way albums are formatted and the way that they're put together. Um, They helped to force, um, first, I think, with the artwork and the naming with Rubber Soul and Revolver, uh, the international look of the band's albums. And then they helped to put the hammer down with Sgt. Pepper, where the same version was distributed. It was the first time I think that had been done. I don't know if it had ever been done before 1967. Wow. With any of the bands that were coming out, because there were always other songs... Hey, we shipped this single over to Japan or to England, and it, it kicked. So we're going to put it on the record, and we're going to add that. We're going to take that thing you weren't so crazy about anyway off. Th- th- these yeah. things were done routinely by the labels and uh, and project managers. Um, so after that, they used their place in music yeah. and in the business to kind of force what became the new norm, standard releases in all territories, yeah. Um they, they helped to the force sales focus go from singles to albums. Um, there were a lot of people involved in that. Bob Dylan, chief mm-hmm. among them, who was, hey, man, this is the record I made. Columbia put it out. And that's the way it worked for them in yeah. good stead for a long time. But not that many people were doing what they were doing and forcing the album. And by 67, they achieved that goal mm-hmm. uh, with Sgt. Pepper. Um they helped with the emergence of various new forms of rock uh, into the mid-60s, progressive and psychedelic acid rock, mm-hmm. hard rock, even the early seeds of metal on things mm-hmm. like... Uh,
1: punk and... Yeah. Well, like things the like rebellious
0: Monkeys. of punk. Everybody's they got would, something it, but to hide, but me and my monkey is yeah. has seeds in punk and in metal. Yeah. She's so heavy from Abbey mm-hmm. Road. You know, those things, those things resonated with a bunch of guitar players who were just getting ready to make their mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of them already were, in, in the case of like Tony Iommi and uh, Jimmy Page.
1: Oh yeah, and they're. Oh, and it's funny that you mentioned Jimmy Page. I was reading an article about Zeppelin One, which is celebrating fifty years, yeah. and George Harrison and Mick Jagger hated that album when they first heard it. They were like, oh, eh, what is this noise?" Ugh. They probably
0: reacted the same way the hair bands did when they first heard Nirvana, because they knew the gig was up and there was something new coming, you know?
1: (laughs) I didn't even think about it from that viewpoint, but it (laughs) makes total sense. Wow, this is heavier and sexier than what we've been doing.
0: How does he sing that high without squeezing his
1: trousers?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, another thing the Beatles did um, is they they started out in the same club atmosphere, small stage theaters, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. They were one of the first artists that started to progress into small arenas and then outside to play in stadiums. And and it would be a while. I think, you know, I mean, there were some big festivals, but I think it was until Zeppelin started filling the outdoor stadiums that, that it, had been, it would be a while mm. till someone had the ability to do that, mm. even at, what was it, $2 a ticket?
1: Yeah, 2 $3 a ticket.
0: Can you believe ticket prices uh-huh. from then? You see them online, yeah. right? Yeah, you ever yeah. see that? The, the old yeah. Beatles, the $2, they yeah. saw them at uh, And that was yeah.
1: a lot. That yeah, was a $2. lot
0: of... Two bucks for a show, what? That's a whole podcast right there talking about concert ticket prices. I'll have to go find mine. i get them out of the old jewelry box.
1: I know. I think my U2 at Red Rocks ticket was like $11 or $16 or something like that. Maybe $9. It was just ridiculously low. All right.
0: Now, there's another way the Beatles changed things. Okay. I'm making my case here, aren't I? You are. When they started out, a lot of the tours were reviews. Everybody got 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Even Buddy Holly, he was on Mm -hmm. a review tour when he died. Yeah. They helped to make it clear headliner and opening act or two. They were the they were one of the first bands that said, I mean, if you opened for Elvis, weren't you thankful? Oh yeah. yeah if you opened for the Beatles, you were going, I'll Ooh. be talking about this in fifty years. Yeah, you are. If My
1: grandkids are gonna love this story.
0: <laughs> um they were the first artist to play stadium sized venues like yeah. they did. They were first artists to give a rooftop final appearance, which was also filmed, and we can talk about that.
1: And there's a book that just came out about that. That's right. You were just telling me about that. We're going to look into that, folks. We may have the person who wrote that book on to talk about all this.
0: Now... The Beatles raised the bar incredibly high for everybody. Oh, without a doubt. Every time they put out a record, you know, all the other bands were run into the record stores to get it. Mm-hmm. And in every aspect, they pushed their fellow British bands, they forced Americans to start changing the way that they were playing rock and roll, and they challenged everyone on both sides of the pond to do their best. Absolutely. Think about their production-style influences, you know?
1: Well, what they did with Sgt. Pepper's is unbelievable. You also have... Um... What's the other album that they did? Not Sgt. Pepper's, uh, Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah. That's another production masterpiece that's so bizarre and so different from anything else that they had done.
0: And that's another example. That came out in 67, but it also is another example of different formats. Um, the Brits liked uh, EPs, yes. right? Yes. So they would, Magical Mystery Tour was a double EP. So it was two seven inch size pieces of vinyl. That with but they had the small uh, album hole, mm-hmm. but it was two, so it was like a little mini box, right? Mm-hmm. The U.S. never caught on to EPs, and uh, so what they did in the U.S. was they took those the, the double EP, put it on one side, and put a bunch of singles that hadn't been on albums on the other side. There's your American Magical Mystery Tour. Yep, and that's the way things got done on a, in a lot of cases. With with uh, Pepper was they 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 heard something bigger than they could fit live onto four tracks. So they slaved four track units together, like record this stuff here and then play it back onto one track while you record the other stuff live. So you had not your whole backing tracks, Mm -hmm. but like say the horns or the, or Mm -hmm. the strings and things like that, that they could do that. And, um, that led to the push for an eight track board. God, I think I have an eight track board in my kitchen right now. Uh, (laughs) Then 16 and 24 and, and on and on and on. That was in their time. Um, They influenced style. You know, we talk about Bowie, and Mm -hmm. there's so many ways he had such a mass influence on style. But they were one of the first. Elvis did, too. And there were 50s artists who dressed with style
1: and all that. Little Richard was great with style.
0: But when the Beatles came out with the the mop-top haircuts, kids started getting in trouble at school because the hair was over their
1: ears, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially
0: in Catholic school. I'll tell you my experience Get your
1: knuckles cracked for that.
0: (laughs) And... (laughs) So there was that. And from the time they were the mop tops in suits to the bad boys in suits to the cool fashions, everybody doing their own thing of the 60s London, Uh, they created their own fashion sense. They took a different partnership approach. The last few records, I think you you see more of their personal touch uh, on the records working in tandem with Martin, especially White Album Forward. They took control of their publishing and their image rights which was on her, nobody was thinking about their image rights then, started their own label, created a boutique, created all this stuff, signed artists and ran a label uh, and, you know, managed their business, their rights, and ultimately their legacy in a way that no one had done before, Uh, certainly not a band uh, that it broke up.
1: Who had the business sense in that band to do that? Or, or did they all have that type of business sense and then they just collectively worked really well together to a point when they realized they had to split out and do their own thing? Which is what happened. That much talent, those guys all had to go their own way at one point.
0: I think that uh, early on, um, Brian Epstein, their their manager who uh, who died in 67, mm-hmm. didn't live to see the the full fruition of the Beatles and what they would become. Um, I think that he was a huge influence on all of that. And once they understood what their business was and they saw the size of the bank accounts, I think that it, it, individually they realized that they needed to become, uh, businessmen in, for their own regard. And, uh, I think through the years, if you look at the numbers, I think McCartney did an amazing job of managing mm-hmm. his money and Oh his without income. a doubt. He of course Lennon he's, had, he's he, for, for the time John had, it's it is incredible, uh, the what they were what they all amassed and what they're and what they're in in two of their cases their uh, estate continues to collect. Mm-hmm. It's um, the business part of it then went into uh, the hands of Alan Klein, who is a very disreputable, genuine. He has a doesn't mm-hmm. have a great reputation. I don't want to say too much. I don't like to speak ill of the dead. Mm-hmm. But um, but at that point, they knew enough about the business to know how to handle their business, and so they did. And and um, I th- but I think the lasting influence there is they found out what it was they wanted to do. They figured it out. They made the playing field the way they wanted to, and then they did it. And like you said, so much talent. How much more could they have done? We don't know. We never will. But at that point in time, 63, 64, 65, 66, 67, that's a turning point in rock and roll history. And I believe the Beatles had, while others had huge influences, other things would kick it into higher gears and take it places mm-hmm. that the Beatles probably weren't thinking of when they left Hamburg and started their, their journey. It was that fulcrum point that I think really made the difference, and it opened so many people's minds and eyes to concepts that would later become
1: standard. Yep. And what, you know, those four years are huge I've been reading a lot about the 60s, especially the last few months since we've been planning this podcast, and the results of the Beatles from 63 to 67 are 1968 and 1969, which are two of the greatest years ever of album releases in the history of rock and roll because of the art. The art put into the music... Wouldn't have happened the way it was if it wasn't for the Beatles those four years before.
0: That's why I think they had such a, you have to look at the influence they had. The music, um, the excitement, the reason for the influence, all good things to look at. Mm-hmm. But you got to you look at those elements that I just kind of laid out there, almost like a legal case. Back to their influences from the 50s through to where they were when they did that rooftop concert. And uh, I really want to get that book.
1: We're going to get that book. we to get that book, and i want to read it. And we'll get to we'll talk And to we'll interview the that. author, yep. And we'll get them on as well so that we can add to that. But, yeah, there's all so right. much more to talk about well, the Beatles. I mean, their impact as solo artists afterwards. Paul McCartney and the Wings, George Harrison, and all the amazing things he did with the willberries and just the artists he worked with, Family and Jeff trees, Lynn, man. And Family and trees. Boom, boom, boom. You got it. But so. I
0: submit to you, Judge Your Honor, Marcus of the <laughs> Darkest. <laughs> That the Beatles, as the fulcrum point in rock and roll's development, had, the case has been made, and we do invite all of you, by the way, to weigh in. You want to tell them where they can uh, email us and all that good stuff, Marcus.
1: Imbalanced History at Gmail, or you can hit our Facebook page, Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And, and if you
0: like what you're hearing on our first two episodes, I would strongly, strongly suggest that you uh, share our podcast. Uh, you know. HTML, our URL, whatever you got to share. Share it over and put please. it on your page and tell people to come to our uh, our little podcast about the rock and roll we love so much.
1: Yes, and please participate in the conversation. This conversation will only get better because of people like yourself chiming in. And we look forward to hearing what you have to say and what you have to bring to the table because, again... We don't know everything. We don't know close to being near. We don't know close to everything or anything as far as that goes. We, no, we, we don't.
0: And you know what? And if we're wrong, we want to hear from you about absolutely. that too. We certainly want to say, hey, you were talking about this and you didn't get that quite right. Please document and send it to us and so we can uh, make Ign- sure that we're getting this imbalance thing uh, imbalanced.
1: Yes, we definitely need to balance the imbalance. imbalance of rock and roll. Oh, my. <laughs> so, again imbalanced history at gmail or imbalanced history of rock and roll on facebook
0: you know we're getting organized we already know what our next episode is going
1: to be yes we do you want to tell them about it i think so i think with the upcoming rock and roll hall of fame we decided to talk about this year's nominees and this year's inductees so that's where we're gonna go
0: it could get uh, opinionated that's all i'm
1: gonna say mm, it will get opinionated
0: For for Dark Doc Media, I'm Ray the Doc Coob. He's Marcus in the Darkest. (laughs) And thanks for listening to the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll podcast wherever you found it. Thank you.